Chapter 1, verses 29 through 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is, in, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. This is God's work. You may be seated. Open your Bibles up to the book of Colossians. And while you're doing that, you might find inside of that announcement sheet an outline that you can use as we go through our study of the entire book of Colossians this morning. While you're doing that, just a reminder, uh, did not mention this during the announcements, but as you know, a couple of times during the year, we have the, uh, the South Texas uh, Blood Bank show up here at our church, and we spend uh, the morning donating blood. And uh, they are here again this morning. They're set up over in the Fellowship Hall. They've been here since 8.30 this morning. They'll be here uh, as, through the afternoon as long as there are people that, that are wanting to donate. And we would really encourage you to, to do that. Uh, there's there's lots, of, lots of reasons to, to donate blood because of uh, our, our congregation and uh, this size and, and sometimes because of surgeries and things like that. There's, just, there's a need for blood. But even outside of our church family, we live in a gigantic city where uh, there, there are some tragedies and there are some accidents and there are mishaps and there's mischief. And this is a way that, that we, we minister to people in our community sometimes without even, without even knowing their name or without even knowing them personally. But by giving uh, our blood, we are helping them. And so if uh, you have thought about donating some blood, if you've thought about maybe going and checking and seeing if, if that's something that you can do, we would encourage you to do it. They'll be here throughout, again, the early part of the afternoon. So uh, if you need some information about that, you can catch Doug Brown, Douglas Brown, after our assembly, and he can show you how to get over there. Now, we are going to think about Colossians this morning, and we're going to begin with a word of prayer. And we're going to ask everyone to join their hearts and all of us to bow our heads as we go to God in prayer one more time. Father, there are times when, when we wish we were at the vantage point that You enjoy to be able to see what it is that You see. We recognize our finiteness. We, we recognize that You are infinite. But, but we pray, Father, that, that You help us to understand and that You deepen our discernment of, of life and of creation and that in one of the ways that You've given us to do this through Your Word, Father, that You will deepen us and open our eyes to see it and open our ears to hear it in such a way that we turn toward You. Not just, not, not just Father, in, in desperation, but, but turn to You in awe and in worship, and in love, and in deep abiding faith in Your power and Your nature and Your strength and the grace that You shower upon us. This we pray, Father, as, as we go through this book this morning, 
we pray for these words to, to be written upon our mind and upon our heart and that it go all the way deep into our souls, Father, in such a way that it changes. Bless us this morning, Father, in this way. We pray it in Your Son Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin with that statement. It's up here on the screen. It's a statement that we use uh, at the beginning of all of these messages as we think about every book of the Bible in 2014. The statement is this, the Bible is not a collection of random stories, but it's one story about God, about man, about what went wrong, and what God is doing to put it back together again. Now, that brings us to the book of Colossians, and I want to illustrate uh, part of the tension and the issues that Paul is dealing with in the book of Colossians, or the letter to the Colossian church, with a true story from 2013. It's a fellow by the name of Reuben Pavan, who lives in Derry, New Hampshire. And last year, he's driving down the road, and he comes to a stop because he sees a sign above the store that catches his eye. And not only that, out in front of this store, out on the sidewalk, there on the road, are all of these really cool things that look like, you know, they, they should be for sale. And so he sees the sign, he sees all of that stuff, and he pulls over. The sign above the store said, Finders Keepers. So he pulls over, jumps out of the car, grabs a, the coolest gas grill he can find, throws it in the back of the car, and he takes off. Well, he thinks everything is cool, but the security cameras have caught him. They call the Derry, New Hampshire 5-0. They come roaring into action. They pull him over. He confesses, yeah, I took the gas grill plus all of this other stuff. And he returns it, and he said to the owner, he said, I guess I just didn't understand the message of the store, Finders Keepers. Well, the moral of that story is messages are not always understood, are they? How many times do you have to say to a kid before you realize the same message, the same message over and over again before you think it's understood or at least half of it is understood? It's not always understood. And this is part of the issue. This is part of the problem that Paul is having with the church in Colossae. Apparently, from the reading of Colossians, it's not a church that Paul has been to or even founded. He says in chapter 2, right there at the very beginning of that chapter, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and those at Laodicea, which is a town very close to Colossae, and for all who have not, what, met me personally. The indication there is that this is probably not a church that, that Paul founded. And, and that makes sense that, uh, that there would be a church where, you know, Paul can't be everywhere at once. As much as we think of him as a, a superhuman, super apostle type, he can't be everywhere at once. And it looks like he sends one of his associates, a guy by the name of Epaphras, to Colossae to introduce the city to the gospel. And not only does he go there and introduce the gospel, it, it seems like he's incredibly successful in getting the church started there. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 7. You learned it from whom? Epaphras our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. But now Paul's in prison. Paul's life has turned in another direction. If you look at chapter 4, three times in that chapter he says, I'm in chains, or I have a fellow prisoner, or remember the chains that I'm in there at the end of chapter 4. And while Paul is in prison, he hears a bit of troubling news. There's, there's some, some, some news that comes to Paul's ears. It's not all that positive. It's, it's kind of stressful. It creates maybe a little bit of anxiety about what's happening to those brothers and sisters, those Christians in Colossae that Epaphras had evangelized. Now the exact nature of, of, of the teaching that is troubling to Paul, that's going on in Colossae, is not precisely known. But there are some hints in this letter 
that, that Paul, especially in, in chapter, chapter 2, that Paul is having to reteach, to, to go over again, to, to reintroduce the all-supremacy, all-sufficiency of Christ. And while Paul challenges these people in Colossae, these brothers and sisters, these Christians like you and me in Colossae to do, is to live in, 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 in a Christ-only religion. To not be taken captive by what he's going to call hollow and deceptive philosophies that he kind of hints at in that sec- second chapter as to what they are. The philosophy, though, can be summed up as this. It's not Jesus alone. It's Jesus and. It's a Jesus alone. Jesus is all you need. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is the only tonic you need for what troubles your soul versus a Jesus and philosophy, which means Jesus plus something else. Jesus with some other things added to it. Jesus with additives. Now, I don't, want, I don't know what it is about human beings, but it seems like human nature. I mean, I'm a part of this. It just seems like we want to add. We want to add and we want to add stuff. And we want to add stuff in order to make what it seems to us to be a, a, a better concoction, a better, a better end result. Hand me a recipe. I'll start reading it. I want to know how many jalapenos I can add to make it better. And if jalapenos can make it pretty good, then a triple dose of garlic will make it perfect. I'm a guy that likes to add that stuff. I want to be able to taste it. Now, when we get back to Colossae, that human nature of wanting to add and wanting to add takes a troublesome turn. The problem in Colossae is not whether or not Jesus is important. It's not whether or not Jesus is is important and necessary. The problem is whether or not Jesus is sufficient. Can Jesus get the job done when it comes to salvation? And the kingdom of God. Can Jesus get the job done when it comes to human salvation? Can Jesus make you all you need to be? The false teachers in Colossae taught one needed Jesus. Yeah, you need Jesus. Jesus, the, the, the gospel is not, not bad. You need Jesus, but you need something else. You need something else to be saved. The false teaching was not anti-Jesus. It just wasn't fully reliant on Christ. You need Jesus plus some some supplements. You need to supplement the gospel with some things. And you see this mainly in chapter 2. You, you need Jesus plus, plus some other components of, of the religious life, like circumcision in verse 11, or human traditions in verse 8, or the worship of angels in chapter 18, or observing the, the Sabbath in verse 16, or even some food regulations. It's Jesus plus the kinds of foods that you eat in verses 16 and verse 21. And so Paul is in prison and he's beginning to hear how this church that started out so well with Epaphras is beginning to take a detour someplace and end up who knows where because they are beginning to add to the gospel. They're, they're, they're beginning to add things that are going to lead them away from the Christ and not fully putting their faith fully and standing firmly on Christ Himself. And so he writes to them, in Christ all the fullness of the what? Deity lives in bodily form. He's saying right off the bat, when it comes to Christ, God, the fullness of God is inside of Christ. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. The fullness of deity is in Christ. And in Christ, He brings fullness to you. 
He is the head over every power and authority. In Him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through your faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. Paul does not say that you can go out anywhere and just find God. What he says is you just can't go out and, and find God in any place or, or just anywhere. He says where you find all of God is in Christ. And so the Christian hope is going to be built on Christ alone and nothing else. Let me read some verses just kind of in sequence here out of chapter 1. He writes to this church that's really struggling about the place of Christ and the supremacy of, of, of Christ and the all-sufficiency of Christ. He says the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel has come to you. He, that is, God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish, without, without blemish, and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. And what does that mean? The hope of glory. Now what he does in this book is answer the question, I mean, how big is Jesus really? And how big is your view of Jesus. And there's a lot of them. Let me give you about four this morning to meditate on as you think about the book of Colossians for the rest of your life. Number one, Jesus is the head. He's the leader. He's the supreme one. He is the head. In chapter 1, verse 18, He is the what, church? He is what, church? The head of the body of the church. He is the what? The beginning. And the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have what? The supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus has supremacy in all things. Angels are subject to Jesus. Demons are subject to Jesus. In your reading of the Gospels, do you ever remember of a, of a reading in any of the, the, the miracle stories in the Gospels of a time when Jesus told a demon to depart and the demon said, you know, I don't really think I will. They obeyed. Even death is subject to Jesus as the head of all things. Paul will write at the end of 1 Corinthians that Jesus is the one who has conquered death and taken away its sting. That that death has been swallowed up in victory. But not only is He the head, but He is also the true reconciler. Frederick Buechner, in, in a book from the 1980s on, on preaching, a, a book entitled Telling the Truth, he says that if you're going to present the Gospel the way that that the gospel presents itself is that the gospel always begins with bad news before it can become good news. The bad news is that we're alienated from God. The, the bad news is, is that because we did not trust God and because we rebelled against God's presence in our life, not only has the world become cursed, but that means that the thorns and the thistles 
the things that impede progress, the things that, that are anti the goodness of the original creation, that's all been introduced into the world. And not only has it been introduced into the world, but it's been introduced into us. The thorns and the thistles represent the opposite of what was good. The Hebrew word tov. When God looked down upon His creation and pronounced that it was very good. It was tov. It was, it was what He had in His mind thought and, and in His power, His powerful Word, brought to fruition. But now the thorns and the thistles have gotten into the good creation and the thorns and the thistles have gotten into us. The bad news is that we're alienated from God. The bad news is that we are helpless in our sins. The bad news is that try as we might, we can't do anything about the thorns and the thistles. We can't do anything about the alienation. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 says that we were once alienated from God and enemies because of that sin. But then we read in verse 22, but now He has what? Reconciled you by Christ's physical body. He's reconciled us by the sacrifice of Christ's physical body through that death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. C.S. Lewis, we, you know, we talk a lot about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote something I, I found very intriguing once. He said, you know, that, that, that people choose hell rather than God sending them there. Reconciliation and forgiveness are universally available, but they will not be universally accepted. When Christ died on the cross once and what? For all. Forgiveness was made available through faith in Christ's action on the cross, in His life, in His, His sacrifice. And the repentance and the confession and the coming to faith in, and, and the being baptized with Him in faith, in the power of God, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, is, 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 is available to anyone to, to respond, to access that, that, that forgiveness. I mean, that's, that's the way that it works in life, right? I mean, people, people forgive all the time, but people sometimes cannot accept that forgiveness. They would rather, they would rather die. They would rather, they would rather suffer. They would rather be in agony and anxiety and, and stressed out of their mind rather than to admit that they're wrong. The forgiveness is there. The reconciliation is there in these relationships. But I'm not going to say that I'm wrong. I'm not going to say that I made a mistake. I'm not going to say that, I, you know, that, that I, I've not lived my life in such a way that, that, that really, I need your forgiveness? And that's, that's what happens all over the world through every era and throughout all of time is that here is this forgiveness that's just been presented at the cross. And people do not choose it. People will, will choose to, to, to access that forgiveness and enjoy that salvation or they will not. As Paul says in Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to, say it, all people. Not only is Jesus the true reconciler, He's, he's, the, one, he's the tonic for your soul. He is the remedy. He's the medicine. 
What you need more than anything else in that God-shaped hole is for God to come streaming into your life through the clouds in glory, in love and compassion and mercy in such a way that it absolutely radically melts you and transforms you and turns you into His child. He is the true reconciler. He is the head. There is, he is supreme. But then number three, He is the victor who defeats death. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul says He's disarmed the powers and the authorities. He's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Some years ago, I, I heard a story about a missionary who ran across a very primitive tribe in Brazil who had very little contact with the modern world. They were still very remote. They were still very, very primitive and, and deep, deep, deep away from anything civilized, civilized, uh, civilized as we would count civilization. And at the time the missionary ran into them, they were being decimated by a disease for which there was a cure. But the medicine that would heal them was across the river. And they were too superstitious to cross the river to get to where the medicine was. The tribe thought that that river was full of demons and they were deathly afraid of it. And the missionary tried to get them to go across that river. He jumped into the middle of the river and splashed around and, and jumped around, but he couldn't get anybody to come into the river. He got out, even tried to, to get them by the hand to go into that river. They would not go. And finally, the missionary, knee-deep in the water, dives under the water and swims to the other side. And when he gets up out of the water on the other side from that tribe, all he can hear is hooting and hollering and clapping. He had shown them how to get to the other side by doing it himself. And that's the path that Christ has blazed for us, not just in this life. Christ has blazed a path for us in this life that we follow in His footsteps. One of the ways that, that Jesus is referred to in, in Hebrews is, is the one that is, is, is the pathfinder. He's, he's the one that, that blazes the trail ahead of us. But it's not just in this life. He's not just teaching us how to live in relationships and how to live... In, in every aspect of this life, a circumstance and situation in light of the truth of the reality of God and, and how life really works and how God intended for life to really work before the thorns and the thistles came into life. But He also blazes that trail and shows us the way to go through the middle of death to the other side of it. The resurrection of Jesus is not Him hitting death and then bouncing back. Jesus goes right through the middle of it to the other side. And so in chapter 2, verse 12, buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through your faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. And Jesus, lastly, is the moral vision for life. Christ's, God's goal in Christ, God's goal is not just to save you or to just keep you out of, of, of hell, but for you to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. To go to C.S. Lewis again, a, a phrase in mere Christianity, is to make you many Christs. And, it, and it's, not just, it's not just to save you, it's not just to adopt you, but it's to change you. 
You know, we, we say this all the time. You know, we, just, we, we think that the only thing we need is to be forgiven, 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 forgiven. But we also need to change. Forgiveness is needed, but so is change. That's why repentance is part of the message. Maturity for a Christian is defined as Christ's likeness in the emotional life, in the affections, in all of our actions, in our, our thought life. Spiritual maturity is for all Christians, and it happens throughout all of our Christian walk. Some years ago, uh, while I was living in Kansas, I had the privilege to preach for a church that had seen some bumps in the road. Before I, I got there, they had suffered three splits in 15 years. The last one was about eight years before I got there. There was a, a lot of damage. As you can imagine, in a split, especially when it seems like that's just the way that people are going to handle these things, people behave dreadfully on both sides. And, and there, there were people that, uh, that, that uh, took some anger and some frustration out on the elders of that church. One of them had to be hospitalized because of the stress of that situation. Uh, a couple of years after I had been there, there was an opportunity to mend some of those fences and even worship together. And on the day that we worshiped together, after uh, probably 11 years apart from each other, this one elder... Uh, fellow by the name of Vince Muirhead, 96 years old. This one elder, Vince, who had taken the brunt, who had been beat up the most, who had been the target of, 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 of the greatest percentage of, of the rancor, was the one who was the most gracious and welcoming to those who had been so cruel to him. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, Paul writes, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with each other. That's the answer to a lot of questions in it. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any one of you has a grievance against someone, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect, say it, unity. In perfect unity. Oh, the book of Colossians is something that we could spend the rest of our lives thinking about. One of the really hard things that I struggle with week to week is, is trying to, to, to cram these books into to one, a one-off lesson. But I'll close with, with just this thought. Think, think for a moment of the way that Paul describes the Messiah Jesus in that first chapter. The one that, that saved us, the one that we pattern our life after, the, the one that uh, mediates for us 1 Timothy chapter 2. The one whose image, Romans 8, we're being conformed to the likeness of. Paul says to this church in Colossae, and to our church today, 2,000 years later, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation the Creator of all things. He is before all things. He holds all things 
together. The firstborn from among the dead. And right now, He's the head of our church. He is the head of our church. What Paul wants the church in Colossae to do, and I think what he wants our church family to do, is to just think about who Jesus really is. Is there, is there a more beautiful, is there a more majestic person than Jesus of Nazareth? And Paul says that He lives in you. Paul says He lives in you. You know what he's saying there? He's saying we do not need more than Christ. But what we do need is more faith in that Christ. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And this, this Christ, who as God the Son, left, his, left a place of honor, left a place of glory. If you think about John chapter 13, when Jesus left His place of honor as the head of that supper in John 13 and washed those disciples' feet, think about what He did. What He was doing was helping them to understand what He did on a much larger scale. The Incarnation. That Jesus was in a place of honor and in perfect harmony with God the Father and God the Spirit. But He did not count that glory, something that, that equality with God, something that He was just going to grasp and hold on to at any cost, but was willing to empty himself, that is, to, to take off the, 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 the clothing of glory in, 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 in God's presence and to become like one of us. And not just like one of us because, you know, there are lots of human beings around the world. He, he not only became a human being, he not only became a, a man, but he became a servant. And not just a servant but one who was obedient to death. But people die all the time. It's a sad fact. It's part of the thorns and the thistles. We hate that death. But Jesus died, not just a death, but He died on the cross, which meant that He died as a criminal. He died as someone who was under guilt, our guilt, our sin. And as Paul says in Colossians, God was able to reconcile us, that is, forgive our sins, to, in our alienation because of the thorns and the thistles, to bring us into His presence because Christ died, the most perfect man, the most sensitive man. And because He was sensitive, the more it pained and hurt Him. But to take all of that on and to die under our condemnation with our guilt so that we could be reconciled. So that we could find that relationship with God that is the answer to every question we have, that, that God-shaped hole we have in our heart, that's the answer. So that we could come into God's presence and know Him and to be blessed by Him and for God's Spirit to come inside of us. And Jesus is the only way. The only way. And if you're ready to go through that door into the household of God to become a part of His family, 
then it's as simple as, as this morning, just coming maybe down to the front and talking to these shepherds or grabbing one of the ministers and, and asking, how do I make this, this relationship real in my life? How can the reality of my, my sins being forgiven and being reconciled and no longer alienated and all of the painfulness that comes from never feeling at home with God change so that I can feel like I'm His kid? I'm his, not just His creation, but I'm His adopted child, His son, His daughter. The heir of every good thing that He has in His household. Doesn't mean that life's going to be easy. Doesn't mean that life is going to be without pain. But what it does mean is that God is, is with you and has prepared you and strengthened you and equipped you and blessed you to go through whatever it is you face in the thorns and the thistles. Until that day, the other side in the world to come, the, the life after life after death, life, the renewal, the redemption of all things in the presence of God for all of eternity. To go through life with that destination is where that peace and that inexpressible joy come from, His presence. And that can be real for you this morning. Come down and talk to these shepherds while we stand and sing together.